Hello, welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the coming days, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever IdeaFest at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, a one-on-one -on -one with U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. In her talk with The Washington Post's David Marinus, Baldwin discusses how her mother and her childhood shaped her politics. She also reflects on the camaraderie between women in the Senate, the recent clashes in Charlottesville, and the presidency of Donald Trump. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Um, in my career as a biographer, I've sort of come to think of that history and character shape, uh, or in combination, sort of shape destiny. Um, you know, people are shaped by sociological forces, by cultural forces, by personal forces that they either react to or against in some very fashion. That doesn't mean that every two individuals who encounter somewhat similar circumstances react the same way, but that in a larger sense, that's what shapes people. And politicians um, are people, even if corporations are not. <laughs> uh, and from what I've come to uh, learn about you and, and sort of as an elected official and as a human being, that to, to, to a very interesting degree, the circumstances of your life help, help not only shape who you are, but how you think and what your policies are. Um, and um, my wife, Linda, and I had this wonderful opportunity to attend the memorial service for your mother, uh, Pam, a few weeks ago. And that really deepened my understanding of, of Tammy Baldwin and where she came from, what she thinks, and what the idea of Tammy Baldwin is. So I, I want to talk about ideas and, and, and policy, but I also want to root that in first for, so people can understand some of that. Um, you know, not, a lot of people might not know how that, that life shaped your policy. So if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of start with the notion that your mother was 19 years old when you were born, is that right? Yes. Um, a couple blocks from where I lived on Lathrop Street, and then, and then you moved with your grandparents right away. So what, what was that formative experience like? Or so uh, as you can imagine, I only form memories at a later stage. Yes. Um, but you fill in what you don't remember by the stories told in, in your family. And so my mother was 19. She was... Uh, going through a divorce, um, and she moved back with me to her parents, and for the first um, probably several months, she remained at home, uh, and then <clears throat> my grandparents really took on the role of parents. Uh, my mother hadn't finished her undergraduate degree, uh, as you might imagine, at 19. She had stopped school, and she returned uh, to school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and our pattern was that I stayed with my grandparents during the week and would usually spend Saturdays uh, with my mother. And so 
many of my earliest memories were uh, oftentimes having a great time with my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, you can think of it as a reversal between grandparent and parent roles. You know, the new grandparents say, I love having the kids, and the, but I can always give them back, yep. right? And, and in this <laughs> case, it was... All responsibility. <laughs> and, and in this case, um, I think an argument could be made that it was sort of that in, in reverse. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would also say that, uh, as, as I talked about at my mother's memorial service, um, that she, uh, she struggled with a lot of uh, things, mental illness, physical illness, and addiction. And so, you know, my memories were both uh, of going there and having the, the fun, cool mom, uh, being on campus, meeting her friends, meeting uh, her circle of acquaintances, watching her as um, uh, an activist, frankly, on the campus. You can imagine in the 60s what was going on here on the UW-Madison campus. And so I saw that and, um, and, and sort of took all of that in. Um, but I also saw some really difficult things for a child to see when my mother was struggling with that host of, of um, really hard things. You know, you had a wonderful statement in your eulogy. You said, um, because of my mother, I grew up fast, very fast. And because of my mother, I tried to fix things that couldn't be fixed. And by my mother's example, I found my calling to help others and try to fix things that I can fix. It's probably one of the most difficult um, uh, things to uh, grapple with as a young person, especially if you do have a loved one who um, struggles with mental illness or addiction, um, even uh, physical illness in some ways, is you, you want to be able to, especially as a young child, um, fix things, make everything right, make everything good, make everything happy. Um, and uh, no matter how hard you try, uh, it's not within your power to do that. And, um, and yet I always grew up trying and trying and at different stages in my life, um, you know, even as, as a pretty young child, uh, trying to figure out what can I do to uh, help create stability and happiness for, um, for my mother, harmony between my grandparents and my mother, which wasn't always the case. And, um, and those are things uh, that a child can't do and even an adult can't necessarily do. Uh, but um, at the same time, uh, you know, my mother uh, did ultimately get her bachelor's degree in social work in um, 1968 at this university. I'm, I'm up to here on her in the, in the graduation photograph. Um, you know, she in cap and gown and me, proud, uh, proud daughter. And, um, and her career uh, uh, was really very much focused on um, helping others. I worked in the um, Child Protective Services and with foster parents, uh, foster families here in Dane County for a while, and then uh, later um, worked in a number of settings with chronically mentally ill individuals, um, with uh, others struggling with substance abuse issues. Um, and so I saw her calling uh, not only when she was a youthful activist on campus, but as a professional, and you know began to learn those lessons about where you can help 
uh, uh, fix things, if you will. Um, and uh, so her example was very, very powerful to me. Uh, the things I learned because of her and the things I learned by her example and the calling I felt to help others uh, in, um, in my life. Reacting to and against in, mm -hmm. in that context. Very and, much so. And um, in fourth grade, you got sick. I did. And that also helps explain why Tammy Baldwin pushes the programs that she does. Yes. So when I was uh, nine, um, I, I developed something uh, that's similar to spinal meningitis. I use that because most people are familiar with the symptoms and the severity. Um, it wasn't, that wasn't the exact diagnosis, but um, very, very sick. Uh, I, my temperature upon admission to the hospital was like 108. And, and you yeah. lived. Yeah. <laughs> Well, children are a little more resilient uh -huh. that like adults couldn't necessarily take that. But, um, and I um, was in the hospital for three months and there was a lot of, I don't remember as clearly the early times in the hospital when I was really, really sick and probably a little bit out, you know, out of it. Sure. But, um, but I, you know, got um, slowly better, but there was a lot of discussion of, um, how I would be treated, uh, did I need a surgery, could we instead uh, treat in other ways, and, you know, all, all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, for a nine-year-old, three months is probably feels a lot longer because it's a bigger, uh, you know, slice of your life than it would uh, today uh, as somebody who's now 55. But uh, I, I, I remember... Um, I more it, it, that informed my political uh, views and my calling to fight for healthcare access because of the story after my hospitalization. Now you can imagine that my grandparents and my mother were not uh, talking with me as a nine-year-old trying to get better about who's paying the hospital bill. But my grandparents had the insurance. They were raising me. My mother uh, did not. And, um, and I understand that there were wars about, <laughs> about uh, whether the insurance should cover me as a grandchild. You know, remember the family insurance, it's sort of dependence. And it, uh, I don't know, you know exactly who paid what dollars, et cetera. Um, but I also know that after that fact, um, my grandparents said, well, we need to get it right, uh, so let's get our insurance. And that's when I was the child with the pre-existing health condition. Mm -hmm. So never mind, I totally recovered from my illness. Um, I, I did um, require some aftercare uh, in terms of um, you know, spinal weakness and sort of regaining my strength, but um, I was a child with a pre-existing condition and they could not find insurance um, from any company at any price. And uh, so they paid for any additional health care that I needed, uh, which fortunately I was a pretty healthy kid, so annual doctor's visits and vaccines After and that, that sort of thing, yeah. out of pocket. And then, um, yet I knew that they worried. I knew that they wondered what would happen if 
I got sick. Um, and it just always struck me as something that is outrageous in this country, um, that there should be families just gripped with fear about what they would do uh, if they couldn't afford care for a loved one or um, if it would bankrupt them. Uh, so it, it became really, in many ways, one of the fights of my, my life. Uh, uh, what brought me originally to even local politics was um, issues related to access to health care um, and uh, affordability. In the local level, you can affect that? Well, back in the day, um, there used to be a program called General Assistance at the county, operated mm. by the county. Mm. Um, it was uh, sadly abolished at some point uh, through an act of the state legislature. Um, but what it was is uh, assistance to the very indigent. And uh, so if you were uh, hospitalized, you didn't have insurance, you couldn't afford insurance, it was a county program mm -hmm. uh, uh, authorized by the state that allowed people to, um, uh, to, to have help with their hospitalization expenses. And um, I'll tell you a story about uh, when I was in law school here, I became familiar with actually uh, a student who had spinal meningitis. Mm -hmm. And she was hospitalized. She was um, uh, indigent because she was a student. And she was denied uh, county general assistance because by the rules of the program at that time, she was poor by choice. <laughs> she was otherwise capable of working. She could have held a job. It could have had insurance. And so uh, I felt that was another injustice. Uh, and it actually led to my candidacy for the Dane County Board of Supervisors, where it all started in uh, 1986. Poor by choice sounds like a rationalization we hear a lot in this country. Um, I, I'm sorry, I have a, because I'm a reporter, I have a couple of follow-up questions that aren't totally relevant to that part of it. But um, there are a lot of kids who grew up with grandparents. Yes. Are they not qualified for the insurance of their grandparents, or has that changed? Well, I, you know, in today's world, uh, I think it's probably much more frequent that um, an arrangement like that would go through court. I, I mean, I'm not positive about the frequency of that, but that if, um, that, that there would either be a termination of parental rights and an adoption by grandparents or a legal guardianship uh, granted through the courts, and then that would trigger uh, the eligibility because there would be a legal declaration of dependency between child and grandparent. Boy, does that all sound so legalistic, but, um, but in, in, the story arc of my own upbringing, uh, my grandparents just raised me. Uh, I, I think at one point uh, later in life, um, there, my grandfather did get legal guardianship, um, uh, not motivated by the insurance question, mm -hmm. but, um, but no, they, they just stepped in and were my grandparents and my de facto parents mm -hmm. uh, growing up. And so I think that's probably a distinction now, but. Frankly, many grandparents who get in the child-rearing uh, mode probably don't have the resources to go to court for that sort of thing. So I, there's uh, 
It's a developing movement, uh, the grand family movement, uh, that is, um, uh, I think, one that's really um, uh, important to keep an eye on because oftentimes families are such that this is the way things unfold. And so now all of these years later, you're signing on to the um, universal healthcare Medicare for all. <laughs> not just signing on to being a leader in that movement. Um, so the practical question is, you know, 15 years ago, every, most people thought that things like gay marriage were way off in the distance. Do you think the, you know, how far off in the distance is universal health care for the United States? Well, I, there's, there's a gap between my not having insurance in, as a kid and this, but let, yes. me, let me just fill in a okay, couple please. of the, yeah. the, the recent <laughs> things. So I, I was in the House when the Affordable Care Act okay. was being right. debated. I was on a committee that was um, in charge of uh, big pieces of it. I, I still um, like to boast about the probably the most noteworthy amendment that I actually sponsored was the one that allows young people to stay on their parents' health insurance until they're 26 mm -hmm. years old. And um, that ultimately, when I think about where we were at the point of that debate in America, how many, um, you know, nearly 20% of the population uninsured, um, Premium increases were double digits every year. Uh, it was getting worse and worse. And, um, you know, th this was uh, the first successful attempt after decades mm -hmm. to, um, to narrow that gap, to really try to get to a point where every American has access to affordable quality uh, uh, coverage. And the, the leaps forward are important to note. The fact that people with pre-existing conditions like I was as a kid um, couldn't be denied insurance. The idea that we would get rid of uh, annual caps and lifetime caps. You know, it, there was insurance uh, in policies all around that had $10,000 caps on cancer treatment. That's your first round of chemo, right? And I remember the letters and stories, let me just tell you one, a family in Beloit where dad got uh, cancer, they found the fine print in their policy, $10,000, so the insurance covered the first round of chemo. The second, they actually put on their credit cards. The third, they took out a uh, you know, home equity loan or second mortgage on their house. And ultimately, um, sadly, dad died they lost the house, they went through bankruptcy. I mean, that was the reality before there. And, and so um, this was a big step forward, um, but especially because of the uh, antagonism to it uh, and the attempts to repeal and defund, um, we didn't do what you have to do when you pass a big complex thing is um, continue to revisit it and perfect it and make it better and better. And there was a you know, partisan jam in, in, in Congress. Um, we were real well aware that there were things that needed fixing in the Affordable Care Act, um, but after this last election, as you saw, a very long debate about um, trying to repeal it. And every new uh, version uh, unfurled was 
uh, you know, headlines like 35 million will lose their insurance, 22 million will lose their insurance. It seemed to be a debate over how many people would lose their insurance. Um, it was supposed to be something that the majority party hoped to achieve in very short order. In fact, my colleagues, some of them said, we want this to be the first major bill on the new president's well, that's desk, what Trump said. January yeah. 27th. Yeah. Um, we come to this point, and by the way, the um, I, I hate to get into the legislative ease, but the reconciliation measure that allows this to go forward on a simple majority vote in the Senate expires at the end of this month. So something that was supposed to be on the president's desk on January 27th, we've managed to halt uh, with only these couple of weeks to go. I, I want to say at this point, and I will get to the question about yeah, Medicare for All, um, that we only got to this point because Wisconsinites and Americans by the tens of thousands got involved, got engaged, had rallies, had town halls, had um, opportunities to tell their healthcare stories to the media and to elected officials, and exercised their voice just in the Bob LaFollet tradition of elevating the voice of the people. Uh, so I am really, really grateful. Not only am I relieved that we haven't seen the passage of a bill that would have such devastating, devastating consequences, but I am so grateful to all of you who got involved and spoke out and told their stories. So where are we today? Um, we need to, to now pivot to uh, fixing the problems with the Affordable Care Act, some of which relates to I'd call it sabotage by our new president, the shrinking of the open enrollment period, the defunding of the outreach and education efforts, um, uh, the refusal to be certain about whether these cost reduction payments are going to be made. Um, but there are other things that need addressing also. And so the good news for bipartisanship is that on the health committee on which I serve, our chairman, Lamar Alexander, and our ranking member, Patty Murray, have been diligently working uh, since that last vote where the bill went down. Uh, we've had four bipartisan hearings over the last two weeks. We believe we can um, put together and maybe even pass unanimously some consensus items that would address the near-term issues um, with the Affordable Care Act. Having stated that, to really answer your question is, it is so clear that there is more that must be done so that every American can afford quality health care and have quality health care. And so in, um, in recent weeks, we've made a commitment to start that conversation. And not only have I proudly signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All, but I've also signed on to a measure that would allow people who are 55 or older to buy into Medicare, um, a new bill that would provide a public option in the Affordable Care Act, and a bill that's under development that I'm um, helping with that would allow people to buy into Medicaid or Badger Care here in the state of Wisconsin. But it is time to take the next steps because we know we can do better and we've got to start that conversation now. 
you know, I know it was the original John Dingle who started the idea of national health care, and then his son, the big John Dingle. Yeah. Um, I was uh, writing about the Clintons in the period of the mid-90s when they did the health care fight, and the uh, overwhelming antagonism of the insurance industry and money really aside from all the other factors, was an enormous factor in why that didn't pass then. And I can only imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that, that whatever that was would be heightened even if you tried to, when you try to go for universal health care and have one single payer. No, I mean, it's going to be a, a huge fight. It's a huge fight. Um, or has society and, changed since then? Well, I want to go back to what I said about how it was we were able to vote down a measure that would repeal the Affordable Care Act and that the Congressional Budget Office said would end up in millions upon millions of people losing their insurance. It was the people. The people of our state, um, the United States, that um, helped us achieve that. Remember, I'm in the minority party in the Senate, um, you know the the, um, the Republicans control the House. This had the prospect of just sweeping through very quickly, and it didn't because of you. And that's how every major battle is ultimately won. Uh, you know, so I'll, I'll hearken back to fighting Bob LaFollette a couple of times probably throughout this. But, you know, he founded the progressive movement. He was founded the progressive party. But all around this idea that um, the monopolies of the day had too much power in Madison and in Washington, D.C. He was both governor and senator. And the only way to change that was to elevate the voice of the people. And in his day, those monopolies were the lumber barons, the freight rail. Uh, uh, you know, we have uh, the powerful interests of our day. Uh, and we're only going to be able to make this sort of progress um, if there's a movement of the people. And how perilous are the next few weeks before the end of this month in terms of that? requiring 60 votes versus 51. Are we in a, uh, is the country in another one of those moments where you can have the same drama you had with, when John McCain gave his thumbs down? John McCain, and I want to add, and, oh, Susan course. Collins <laughs> and Lisa Murkowski, who were solid no's all the way along. Uh, Got to give the women some that was credit my next here question, too, so my I, Republican I allies. Yeah. No, no, no. I know, but he was the yeah. one we didn't yeah. know about, and right. it was so dramatic that evening. You know, there there is um, a measure that's been introduced um, by uh, Lindsey Graham and um, and Cassidy of Louisiana that they are framing as the last opportunity for them to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act before time runs out. Uh, it, I don't know what their path is to get a floor vote on that, um, I, but I won't rest easy <laughs> until, the, until the September 30th date has passed, and none of us should. 
um, because this is, you know, because healthcare is so deeply personal, it matters. Your colleague Amy Klobuchar was here this morning. Yes. <laughs> she and had a great time. I got to see her after, for those of you who I got well, to see her after. Not she only presented. is she uh, very forceful, but she's, in, she's hilarious. I know. Uh, I'm not, she, which is just really. <laughs> <laughs> she's funnier than Al Franken, in my opinion. Yeah. But, but, um, but I mean, it got me thinking about the sisterhood in the Senate. Yes. And uh, what's that like inside to, to be with part of that group? Well, one of the things I would note about, let's say, the deterioration of civility in politics um, over time is that either with the modern expectation that uh, federal representatives commute every week, so they're, they're not breaking bread together and, and becoming friends and, and um, uh, you know, really working on bipartisan things together over the weekends, um, and add to that a sort of insatiable 24-7 news cycle that didn't exist back in the day. Um, the, the, the partnerships, the, the um, friendships, uh, the interactions that sort of are building blocks for uh, whether it's bipartisanship or greater civility, are not, um, those opportunities don't come up as much. And one area uh, where it is still a priority, and I, I credit um, my now retired uh, colleague, um, Senator Barbara Mikulski, who was the dean of the women um, in the United States Senate, and what personal mentor for me. I mean, she like, mm -hmm. took me under her wing when I, I got to the, um, the Senate, and even more so when I um, uh, came onto the Appropriations Committee that she was the ranking Democrat on. And um, she's like, she, you didn't say no to her. Um, <laughs> so it was, uh, we're, the women have always gotten together, usually for dinner, um, sometimes other types of occasions, monthly. And you just clear your schedule. Because you know it's set, and we take turns as hosts, maybe doing some interesting things, or having programming, or just hosting it at our homes. I couldn't squeeze all of them into my apartment, but um, but I, I, you know, we we all make a commitment to this, and all meaning both parties. Everybody. Both parties. Yeah. Tw there's now 21 women in the Senate. That's a record, but not nearly enough, <laughs> and um, it's probably the closest bipartisan group uh, within the United States Senate. And I, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, and while we don't necessarily talk politics, although often we do, uh, out of those have, have um, emerged any number of bipartisan bills that I'm associated with. I mean, Susan Collins and I, um, have several, some that we've passed already and some that we're still working on, but um, one really focused uh, on family caregiving. You were asking me about my youth, but the other thing about being raised by grandparents is um, I learned at a much earlier age about caregiving for mm -hmm. somebody who uh, my grandmother, as, as her health failed, fortunately not until she was 90 years old. Um, I was, you know, she was very healthy and very long. but. Um, but that, that's something that Susan and I have come together on. Uh, Lisa Murkowski and I work on um, uh, legislation protecting our, our fresh water and, um, and uh, a number of water-related initiatives. 
Um, Joni Ernst, one of the more conservative Republicans, and I also uh, partner up on a, a caregiving measure um, uh, to help um, uh, folks who are, uh, you know, spending out of pocket to keep a loved one uh, living independently and uh, not having to go into assisted living or a nursing home. I mean, I could go on and on with the examples across the aisle, but uh, it is something that is a byproduct of just taking the time to build relationships, to hear one another's experience, and to figure out where's the common ground, how do we agree, and how do we move forward with that. Obviously, there's a vast policy difference between like Michelle Bachman and Elizabeth Warren or whatever, or Tammy Baldwin. But what would the Senate be like if there was 100 women? <laughs> Great. Um, well, that reminds me of the, the Supreme Court equivalent of that when uh, somebody, I, I hope I'm getting this right, when somebody asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, there's now four women on the right. Supreme Court. Um, what's, you know, what's parity? Yeah. Or not parity. What's, what would be right? And she said nine. Um, <laughs> it's been nine men for a whole, <laughs> a whole sure. long time. Um, so, you know, one would hope that we would uh, continue in this tradition that we are, um, that we have right now of, um, of taking the time to commit to civility, commit to listening to one another. Um, I, I think that uh, we'd have a much better shot at uh, having a more civil discourse. Uh, certainly the ideological divide that you describe exists among the women in the Senate, uh, just as it does among the men. But I think, uh, I think um, our approach, and oftentimes our calling to public service is different. Uh, I'll share uh, something that I heard a long time ago, and when I talk to my colleagues, it always seems to ring true, is that most of us ran because we saw something we wanted to fix. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Patty Murray is a great example of uh, being a teacher and a mom and going to her state senator and asking for greater education funding with great specificity and backing. And he um, made fun of her. You're just a mom in tennis shoes. Remember, that became her moniker, her, her, her uh, motto, basically. And um, she responded by running and working on the state education budget before she became now the ranking member of the Senate education panel, health and education panel. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's people who see something wrong and, and want to fix it. And uh, I think that's the right attitude. Uh, it's, it's a very constructive way to approach public service. I've written a lot in my career about race in America, which I think is the American dilemma still. Um, and I know getting back to the, my original concept of how poli policy is shaped by human life, I know that, that your life is somewhat unique in that sense, that your godfather was an African-American, your, your, one of your mother's partners was, and how, how did that shape your thinking and how does what lens do you see race in America today from then to Charlottesville? I, well, I'll say, first of all, um, 
So I was a young child. Um, I, my, my godfather, Ron Smith, um, was an amazing person. So he was a Badger football player uh, when my mother was an undergraduate. And they were dear friends and my godfather. And then he turned pro. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, pretty cool to have <laughs> a professional football player. Uh, Except as your he never godfather. played for the Packers. I'm sorry, he didn't. Um, but uh, that was exciting, but it was also, I was a child and it was just sort of, this was my mother's circle of friends. It was just the way it was. And you said, you know, as you d introduce it, um, you know, it makes you unique. But as a kid, and uh, my stepfather was black, um, I, but I was a youth, I was a kid, it was sort of just the way things were and didn't everybody um, have these experiences? Well, the answer is no, um, but as a child, I didn't necessarily know that. And, um, and then, you know, young adulthood or uh, late adolescence, young adulthood, you know, really begin to get um, the context that, um, that perhaps, you know, my experience was unique in some ways. All I can say, I mean, it's, it's hard to take a, an arc from there to Charlottesville. I mean, it, it's so hard to look at that and not understand how everybody, regardless of whether they, um, you know, how they grew up, can't see right from wrong. And when our president among them cannot see right from wrong and cannot name what's right and what's wrong, that's just outrageous. Um, you know, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, it was about uh, race, it was about religion. Um, I didn't mention that my grandfather who raised is Jewish, so, uh, you know, it, it, not that that makes any difference. This was such clear uh, example of right and wrong, and our president failed the test of moral leadership at a time when everybody was looking to him at this moment uh, to be a voice that unifies, that helps heal. And it was just um, unbelievable to me uh, to see a total and utter lack of ability to comprehend right and wrong. How much of a debate do you have, if any? I know you're idealistic and pragmatic, um, and you're dealing with this president, um, how much of a debate do you have within yourself about whether just saying, I'm not going to deal with him at all, or are there places where we can work together? I know on certain issues you've even found that room. Um, but is it hard for you to, to get to that place or not? Um, so it's, I, I would look at it a slightly different way. You know, there's a number of issues that I care deeply about Right. Uh, that affect um, workers in Wisconsin, workers across the country, um, that I've been working on, you know, since President Trump was running beauty pageants. Um, I, um, I think about um, uh, Buy America policies mm -hmm. or the way in which some of our trade deals um, have disadvantaged manufacturing, say, Specifically, I think about ways in which our tax code um, reward 
wealth more than they reward work. In a state like the Badger State, by the way, our moniker, the Badgers, is all about our work ethic. If you haven't studied <clears throat> that history, it Mineral was, point. Yeah, yeah it was a, a sort of um, slam on the miners mm -hmm. in the early 1800s who often sheltered in the mine shafts and came out and they said, you Badgers. And at first, you know, well, they decided to turn it into a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. And it speaks to our work ethic. And, and so, um, you know, for example, um, I have led on uh, the, the measure to take away the um, hedge fund loophole, the uh, carried interest loophole that allows hedge fund managers to, you know, get away paying less as a percentage than hardworking nurses and teachers and truck drivers. I, I have, and I was pleased to hear on the campaign trail President Trump endorse getting rid of the carried interest loophole. Um, I've been sponsoring Buy America uh, provisions for when we are using taxpayer dollars whenever possible. I want those taxpayer dollars to support um, our neighbors, uh, US products, US workers. And, um, and so I don't necessarily think of it as he presented these priorities and should I join him on those. It's like, I've been working on these things and if President Trump campaigned as much on Buy America, Hire America, we should be able to sort of work these things through together and I'd love to have him do more than talk about it. I want some action. I mean, I'll tell you a story about uh, my most recent, um, or last year I worked on uh, Buy America language for uh, the water infrastructure bill. Now you may recall we have a, every so often a big water infrastructure measure. It deals with things like locks and dams and harbors and wastewater. But because of Flint, Michigan, there was a really uh, intense focus on safe drinking water. And we were able to add a lot more resources to um, the, the measure to help people replace lead pipes. And it's not just Flint, Michigan, although what happened there is absolutely tragic, but Milwaukee, Green Bay, communities across this state have challenges with too much lead in the drinking water. And so I put in um, a measure that said, when we use taxpayer dollars for those purposes, let's try to buy American steel and American iron and employ American workers for those projects. And it passed the Senate and went over to the House. I read in December of last year in the Wall Street Journal of all places that um, Paul Ryan and several of the House Republicans have been visited by a lobby shop representing uh, Russian and Brazilian steel interests and were persuaded to remove um, my provision from the bill. And I was horrified. And then, just to sort of add the revolving door in all of that, this same lobby firm had just hired John Boehner. Uh, the former Speaker of the House as their newest uh, member of their team. Um, and it was just, you know, infuriating to me. Um, so what I decided to do this year was reintroduce the same Buy America provision as a freestanding bill. And I went to uh, Nina Foundry. Uh, so uh, Nina um, I 
not known to a lot of my Senate colleagues. I said, just look down. Nina has been making manhole covers for 145 years, and they're iconic because people who invest in them have decided to buy America and get American iron, American steel, and American workers to fill their infrastructure needs. So I reintroduced the bill or announced it at Nina Foundry. Um, But a few weeks later, President Trump was making a visit to Wisconsin to Snap-on Tools in Kenosha. And... uh, one of the Milwaukee reporters did an extended interview with him and said, so what do you think of Senator Baldwin's new uh, Buy America legislation? And he said, I support it 100%. Um, now, no one's going to mm-hmm. you know, deflect an endorsement like that. The question is, help me get it passed, right? Uh, talk to McConnell. Talk to Ryan. Talk to, And so um, you know, I do hope that we can actually achieve a victory not for Tammy Baldwin and not for Donald Trump, but for the hardworking people, especially you know in this state, which is a big manufacturing state, um, to be able to get ahead. What's it like to live in Washington and wake up every morning with a tweeting president? <laughs> not knowing what that, the tumult of the day will be. It is very noisy. It is very chaotic. I, You know, I keep thinking we have to invent new words to describe the era we're in because Mm -hmm. I use unprecedented or uncharted or uh, unbelievable like all the time. And I feel like I need a refresher of, uh, but yeah, policy announced through tweets, um, attacks on other people or even world leaders, even at moments of um, great duress as we've seen, uh, destabilizing. this is scary. And I, I, you know, I, on, on one hand, I have to recognize that he figured out that people were communicating and getting information in new ways uh, before a lot of other people figured it out, including all of his Republican uh, uh, colleagues in the uh, presidential primaries. It was a very effective and powerful tool, but I think everyone kept saying, well, he's going to stop that, right, when he becomes president? And uh, no sign of that ever happening. I know that last night at the Fighting Bob Fest, uh, Thomas Frank, who wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, was there. And I think you could probably write the book What's the Matter with Wisconsin in some ways now. Um, But rather than dealing with that issue, which I'm more curious about, what do you think about the state of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin? And, um, you know, I know when my father first moved here, it was a period when Judge Doyle and Gaylord Nelson and Patrick Lucy and John Reynolds were sort of reinventing the Democratic Party and making it a force. And I wonder if you feel that that needs to be done again in some new way um, to build the party here. I, I guess I focus a little bit more in on my job uh, as sure. as a Democrat. Uh, but your job repart- is affected by that. Oh, absolutely. But um, but in terms of um, you know how we articulate what we stand for, because I do think that relates to your lead up of what's the matter with uh-huh. with Wisconsin. Um, you know what happened last fall. Yeah. Um, so I just believe so strongly in um, 
uh, so many of the things that we've talked about, whether it's um, the ability of people to have the security of, of health care coverage, the security of uh, a retirement um, that won't be uh, one in poverty, um, the ability to have a job that allows them to lead a life that they can send their kids to school and can, um, you know, live in comfort and hope and work hard so that the next generation can do better than the last. And um, I also think it's so much about this um, issue of who has political power and political clout. And you go back to my constant refrain of what Fighting Bob Follett was all about, um, that the people's voice needs to be heard and we can't just have everything controlled by the powerful interests, whether it's drug corporations or the, the lobbyists representing Russian and Brazilian steel interests or um, the, uh, the, the activist hedge funds or all the folks who are getting away with it right now because of the noise and the chaos in Washington, D.C. In the last election, it is clear that Donald Trump, uh, you know, through his say, buy America or renegotiate trade, spoke to um, folks who uh, the Democratic Party has stood by forever. But he did a better job of communicating, and that's a problem. As I just said also on buy America, he's saying the right things, but there's no follow-up, there's no action. Meanwhile, I'm pounding it out trying to, to get these... Um, these things across the finish line on behalf of the people that I represent. I think it's a matter of getting back to those roots. Um, you know, there's a role for the party, there's a role for every um, candidate who is running on the ticket um, to remember those roots, to fight passionately for those values. Uh, and uh, I think because of the engagement I've seen in this state after this last election, I'm heartened that uh, we're going to be able to do it together. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Please. Because... It's your job. You, yeah, <laughs> you, you, saw, you saw incredible uh, people action a few years ago fighting against Law 10. And because of the control of the Republican Party, that really didn't go anywhere. So you... You need both the people and the party and the message, right? I, I thought you were evading a little bit the building of the party part there. Absolutely, there's a, a, a we we definitely want um, a strong party. It's um, I think I mean I always see how it's evolved in various ways at the federal level. There's of course the the Democratic National Party, there's the Senate uh, uh, party structure, there's the House party structure, the state, there's a state party and the Assembly and the Senate, and then there's a bunch of, of candidates. And, and um, I, I think that um, building a common agenda uh, is incredibly important. Uh, I think at the national level, um, we're well along the way, and I'm proud to have a lot of the key components of that, the Buy America, the, some of the trade issues. Um, and um, 
I, I think then, you know, having good communicators that are uh, sharing that message is, is important also. I want to just mention, um, not to go too much on a tangent, but looking at the Wisconsin experience in particular, all the changes that we have seen in our state uh, with regard to voting laws and districting that have basically been a majority party seizing advantage of their control and pushing it the next stages. I mean, I don't know how many in the context of our gerrymandering case have heard that in 2012, uh, the year that I was on the ballot, that uh, Democrats running for state legislature, assembly in particular, had overwhelming majorities in aggregate, but only won a small fraction of the seats because of the way the districts had been drawn. That case is coming to the US Supreme Court on October 3rd, uh, challenging the partisan gerrymandering that has happened in Wisconsin. And if that could change, one of the things I might note, getting back to your question, is competitive districts, candidates fielded in every district, you would have a consistent conversation at people's doors. Uh, and a repetitive conversation about how we would lead differently. Um, the other thing I'd say, getting back to the substance of your question, is um, you know it's very clear that at a certain point in the 2016 race, a decision was made. It actually seemed to make sense at the time that um, candidate Trump would fall under the weight of his own words and deeds. And I think it's always a mistake when members of a party fail to say what they would do and how they would lead differently and only focus on uh, the liabilities or uh, problems with the other side. Um, do you anticipate an attack on voting rights led by Presidential Commission of Election Integrity? I guess that's a way to just talk about this phony Kovacs yeah. commission. Oh, it's been quite horrifying, you know, starting with the seeking of uh, uh, information um, on voters from all the states and some of the um, assertions made of the leadership of that uh, commission that are utterly and totally false and, you know, provably so. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't even think I, I understand what their mission is other than uh, the president's attempt to prove that he actually won the popular vote somehow, uh, as well as the Electoral College. Um, but at the same time, there is so much uh, need uh, to be looking at um, really important questions related to voting. Uh, just taking Wisconsin, uh, you know, I talked about the gerrymandering but uh, we had the state legislature pass laws requiring a photo ID. We had the state legislature pass laws shrinking the available days for early voting, um, limiting uh, weekend opportunities, uh, limiting the hours that that would be available. Um, there has been instance after instance of ways to make it harder and, um, and I, feel that um, those are also very targeted efforts um, that impact uh, old people, young people, racial minorities. Um, 
and Wisconsin is not unique, those would be the type of issues that I would love to see uh, are tackling at the national level, not necessarily for a national solution, but to expose um, the ways in which too many are limiting uh, the opportunities of democracy to their own citizens. But thank you so much, oh, David. Thank you, David. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <It was> great. <laughs>